Shalom and welcome everyone to the ICJ webinar series. I'm David Parsons, a vice president here at the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem and our senior spokesman. And we just uh, want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. We're well into the holidays now. We've been dealing uh, lately a lot with the war here in Israel, with Hamas down in Gaza, several other fronts, a lot of uh, war focus. But uh, it's Christmas now. We want to turn to the Christmas holiday and the Christmas story, but also relate it to Israel today. So our topic this week the Israel story, uh, the, the Christmas story in Israel today, and and it will touch upon the war, and you'll find it, uh, I think, quite interesting, quite fascinating how uh, we make a connection between the whole nativity story of Jesus uh, in 2,000 years ago and what's happening here today. So you need to stay tuned throughout this uh, webinar. Uh, to start, I would like to um, uh, share my screen, uh, but we're uh, dealing with a familiar scripture. I'm going to read a few scriptures at first, and of course, this is one of the familiar scriptures at Christmas that we read, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Uh, it's a powerful uh, in such a concise uh, uh, way, the, the divinity and the uh, humanity of the promised Messiah, of Christ. Uh, he is a, a child that is born into a human body, so it's the full humanity of Christ, but also he is a son, an existing son, that was from everlasting, it even says uh, in, in Micah, uh, and we'll deal with that scripture that uh, out of Bethlehem shall uh, come forth him uh, who, who was born. He's from everlasting, that he was an existing son, the divinity of Jesus and his humanity, all at the start of this uh, prophetic passage in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Hallelujah. The government's on his shoulders. The, the, the Jesus is well able to carry on his shoulders the weight of the world, the weight of all creation and his uh, government is ever increasing. Right now, uh, we, his government is, is in our hearts. He rules over us because we voluntarily, as believers in Christ, yield ourselves to him, yield our lives, yield our wills. Uh, but, uh, and it, as the body of Christ grows over generation after generation, his government's ever increasing, and one day he will come back as the Lion of Judah in order to rule and reign in peace and righteousness over all the earth, whether anyone, whether people want it or not now, but for now, we yield our hearts to his rule and reign in our lives. But there's no in, the ever-increasing government, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, that promised son of David, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time 
forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I want to read one other um, prophetic passage from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the Bible, when it talks about this promised Messiah, here it says he comes humbly, uh, bringing salvation. Jesus came the first time to bring salvation, but he came lowly, riding on a donkey. Now, a donkey, if you're the son of David, as Solomon was, David said, put Solomon on my donkey, the royal donkey. They didn't have horses in Jerusalem. They had donkeys, but there was a royal donkey that Solomon was put on, taken to the Gihon Spring, anointed there, and declared, long live the king, that uh, he was to replace David instead of his brother, who was trying to pull a coup. Uh, you, you know, a king of Israel in Jerusalem would ride like a royal donkey, so he's humble, but coming on this symbol of royalty within the house of David, within Israel. Then it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. See, it's donkeys, not horses. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. This Messiah really has comes to speak peace to the world. Uh, peace on earth, goodwill to men. The angels sang at his birth. His dominion, we're still talking about the government being on his shoulders, everlasting, ever-increasing, no end. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We'll come back to this uh, passage uh, later, but I want to start out dealing with a certain part of the whole Christmas story that I think kind of gets overlooked sometimes. And we're talking about the story of the wise men and what the events that happened as they came to Jerusalem and inquired about where this uh, Messiah uh, was being born. And let's read this story from Matthew chapter 2, the Gospel of Matthew, starting with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. Uh, the, these uh, magi or wise men from the east, they may have been sort of from the, the school of Daniel the prophet who had such a big impact uh, in uh, Babylon. Uh, it's quite likely that they were Jewish or had some connection to Jewish background and such. There's different theories of them, but they come and ask Herod the king, who's the, appointed by the Romans as uh, the king of the province of Judea at that time. They, they ask him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod doesn't like this. There's a rival. For we have seen his star in the east, have come to worship him. Hallelujah. These people had faith that the Messiah was a divine being that you could worship. Now, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He wasn't happy uh, hearing that there was another king around being born and these wise men from the east inquiring about him. 
and all Jerusalem was stirred with them as well. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And the answer was simple. They said to him, uh, well, it says in Scripture, this is from Micah, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet Micah, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the prophets of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, and it says, uh, and his goings forth are from everlasting. So uh, he's an eternal being that comes into a human body to rule over Israel. Uh, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring word back to me that I may come and worship him also. Very, very deceitful statement by Herod because he wasn't uh, interested in worshiping him. He considered this uh, an imposter from his point of view because he was uh, uh, he was the the ruler here in the land of Israel. And it says, uh, when they heard uh, uh, the king, they departed. Uh, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Amen. Uh, and I think what we need to understand here is Jesus is probably not uh, an infant now. He's grown up a little. He may be a year or two old. They've been following a star all this journey uh, away. Uh, and uh, they've um, uh, it comes and stands over their home in Bethlehem. They had come from Nazareth. And uh, when it says there was no room for them in the inn when Jesus was born, uh, Joseph and Mary, it, it actually, in the Hebrew, it says they, they stayed with relatives and the guest room, the word there in Hebrew or Greek, in the Greek, it means like a guest room in their house was already full. Others had gotten there for that census, that tax that the Caesar had declared. And so they had to stay in the back of the house back where the animals, the sheep were kept in the winter months, it was probably warmer in the summer. Uh, and it says that the sh shepherds were out abiding with their flocks by night. That was probably warmer. And I think the date for Christmas, December 25th, there's many theories about it. it it's, there's a good case to be made that this marks the day when the wise men came with their gifts and all. But here, uh, the, um, Jesus was laid in a manger back where the animals were usually kept. But then when they brought these gifts, this is when uh, Christmas, really the, the reason we give gifts and all, it's really tied to the arrival of the wise men. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother, fell down and worshiped him. Boy, this is three, four times the word worship is used of this child. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. They went back uh, to the east by some other route. They didn't want to go back to Herod. 
but it's quite interesting. This gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it was a lot of value. And as we'll see, the the Lord warns Joseph to flee, and uh, and the, these valuable gifts then become like a little trust fund that helped them uh, in raising Jesus and providing for the family as they went and hid in Egypt. This is Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child, his mother, by night and departed for Egypt. Uh, and, and obedience, instant obedience by Joseph. This must have been a very troubling uh, appearance by the angel. I think I'd, I'd pack up that night too. And there, um, they departed to Egypt, and they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. I believe that verse is uh, in Jeremiah. We'd have to check that. Uh, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived, he was trying to deceive the wise men, but he got tricked himself. Uh, he's, he was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, not just Bethlehem, but in that whole province around Judea for two, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. This is the, the slaughter of the infants in the whole Bethlehem area. I think it's part of the Christmas story that we kind of neglect or ignore. You know, you don't talk about it. It's not any in, in the Christmas plays or pageants. We have the wise men coming, but nothing about this because it's a really horrific turn of events that these children would have to pay uh, with their lives for the Christ child to be born. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Ra Rachel, who had died on the entryway to Bethlehem, giving birth to her last child, Be uh, Benjamin, she was weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And I, I, you know, it's not uh, the nicest part of the whole Christmas story, but I think it's very important for us to try and understand uh, the full significance of this. And to, to do this, we've got to take a little closer look at Herod uh, himself. Uh, Herod was called Herod the Great because he was a great builder. He, met, he built many things. He was half uh, Idumean. He was Edomite, meaning a descendant of Esau, and he was half Jewish. So he was a descendant of Jacob and Esau, these two rival brothers who in the end reconciled. But uh, he had, Herod had this thing where he wanted to please the Jews. He wanted to be recognized by them as their king, but he also wanted to please the Romans. You can't please everybody but as we look at uh, Herod the Great, this great builder, he did a whole big uh, renovation and extension of the temple. This is a depiction of, of the first century temple, Herod's temple, expanded temple, that's at the, um, the Jerusalem model at the Israel Museum. You can go there and see it. 
And down here on this south end, this huge uh, colonnade, uh, the Holder Gates were out here. You can still visit these southern steps down here on the side. You enter through uh, one way into the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and then the, the court of the altar, the gate beautiful. And he extended it about a third of the way down south, rebuilt the temple. It was really nice trying to please the Jews so that they would really recognize him as king of the Jews. But he also was out to please uh, his Roman overlords who had appointed him as governor of the province of, of Judea and, and put, installed him, and he, he took the title of king. Uh, but here, this is uh, the city of Caesarea uh, Maritime. It's a depiction of it, which was a huge Roman city that Herod built along the coast of Israel, Caesarea, Caesarea, some call it. Uh, you can still see some of the port there, uh, this big port area, the, the amphitheater and, and such, and he named it after Caesar, and it became sort of the gateway for Rome to the eastern half of its empire. But this is very grandiose, and, and they're still uncovering all the ruins. It's a fascinating, incredible place to stay. Paul, of course, was held here in jail for uh, uh, several years before he went to Rome. And uh, here is the ruins today. Some of it, uh, you can see this is uh, sort of like a, a hippodrome. There's another one inland here, uh, very similar, and the amphitheater and, and so much of the ruins, incredible finds here in Caesarea. So Herod, you know, he, he was a great builder he also built Masada, this mountain fortress on top of uh, Masada down along the Dead Sea. Uh, and, you know, they're still doing digs here. It's very impressive to do this on top of a mountain. This is the Mechpelah, or the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron, still standing to this day. It's designed sort of like the temple in Jerusalem. There are certain parts of it that resemble the temple in Jerusalem, but this was built by Herod around the tomb of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the matriarchs, uh, Sarah and uh, Rebecca. And uh, of course, it's a place of Muslim prayer. The Muslims have the mosque. The Jews have this synagogue or Mech Mechpelah, the tomb of Abraham in Hebron, built by Herod. And uh, probably one of his most amazing feats was what we call Herodium which is a palace built into a mountaintop about uh, three or four miles south of Jerusalem, maybe five miles south, and it's about two miles, two and a half miles east, uh, a little southeast of Bethlehem. And as we look at this place, I mean, this is the overall mountain. It's not just the palace on the top up here, but there, there was a theater down on the side. There were gardens down here. Uh, aqueducts bringing water, uh, um, pools and, and such. You could, you know, take a bath in the pools. It was quite a feat. And here you see it a little more closely. Uh, the water brought in. The, the, you climb up it this way now, but uh, this might have been some other entrance. But this palace at the top, and when you include the theater, um, it was like an amphitheater. It would hold hundreds of people, the gardens, and the whole project. This was actually the largest palatial complex 
of its time in the whole world. It was even bigger than Caesar's Palace in Rome. It was quite a production that Herod built to himself. And what we have to consider is that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, just a couple miles away to the west. And this is uh, the view of Herodian, Herod's uh, palace, grand palace to himself. Of course, he had a palace in Jerusalem. He had one in Jericho. He'd stay in Masada or down in Caesarea, but this was some special one he built to, you know, a real megalomaniac building his, to himself, his huge palace, carving off the top, top of a mountain, building it right down into the mountain, a real mountain fortress and palace, very extravagant, that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, um, it wasn't in zero or one AD. It was probably a couple years before because Herod was still alive. The scholars say he died around 4 BC, which means Jesus was born uh, around, you know, 4 or 5 BC. And uh, as from the time that Mary and Joseph were staying in Bethlehem and the, the shepherds come, the wise men come, the whole nativity story, you could look out to the east at any moment and see Herod's palace. And here the angels, the, the wise men are told, this is this, this child born in Bethlehem, he's born king of the Jews, and the angels declare it, and, and the prophets declare it, and he's the, you know, the rightful heir to the throne of David, the rightful heir to the kingdom of Israel. And he looks out, and there's this rival king with his huge palace just about two miles away. And it's really a powerful picture of the rivalry between them. And this Herod, uh, when you think about this palace, this is part of the, the theater. There was a separate amphitheater, but this is a, a theater. And you can see um, th there was an uh, Israeli archaeologist named Netzer who did the digs, I think, in the 1980s into the early 90s at Herodium. And this is part of what he found, and still paintings and murals that were on the wall still there. You can see the colors and the tones of the paint. It was very extravagant. Uh, here's a bust of, uh, you know, whether it's Herod or someone else, a bust of a Roman figure. Uh, of course, the nose knocked off because that uh, uh, takes away his divinity. He's no longer perfect. If you're a conqueror, the first thing you do is knock off the noses of those who think they're uh, demigods or semigods uh, and have busts, but uh, otherwise this is an incredible find from Herodian of a Roman bust. Uh, here is a water basin that is marble and plaster. This was all put on display a couple years ago at the Israel Museum. I, I went and visited it. We did a, uh, a special fe cover feature in a magazine we did at the time with the Jerusalem Post, the, the Christian edition, on this uh, Im very impressive display of all the finds connected to Herod that were found in the digs, the archaeological dig excavations at the Herodian just east of, of Bethlehem. I mean, this is quite an impressive um, water basin. Uh, and here, this one was... Uh, probably the most incredible of all to me. This is one piece of marble, hard, smooth as can be, 
into a big bath. It's over two meters. You could lay down in this all the way if you're around six foot or so. It's a little over six foot, over two meters long, perfectly smooth inside and out, beautiful marble design in it, the mosaic floor. This was Herod's bath at his palace in Herodian, uh, the rival to, to Jesus who came lowly at his first coming, lowly and even presenting his credentials as Israel's king, riding on a donkey like, like David or Solomon into Jerusalem, but born a lowly birth, humbling himself, born and placed in a manger while just two miles away, here's a rival king of the Jews who lays down in a marble bathtub. Quite a, a contrast. And uh, here is his, uh, um, what they call an ossuary, or, uh, uh, sarcophagus. Uh, it's a, a stone tomb that he was buried in, found at Herodian. And this is sort of the mausoleum, the whole structure reconstructed, brought from Herodian and reconstructed at the Israel Museum with that stone uh, casket uh, in the background, some other things from the Herodian uh, exhibit. Uh, this is like a depiction of what it looked like here. And on top of the mountain, what we see is just what's left, but it was built up a fortress and and towering place with all sorts of stuff up on the side. I guess it would look a little like the Baha'i Gardens in, in Haifa on Mount Carmel. As you went up the side of the mountain, there were gardens and flowing water and everything as you approached it and went up the, the steps, uh, all built uh, uh, into you know, a grandiose place built to Herod's own ego. Herod the Great, the great builder, building himself this amazing palace the largest palace in the world at its time. Now, this uh, story of the slaughter of the innocents and this rivalry with uh, Herod, it wasn't just some petty rivalry and, and your normal, you know, fighting for the throne. Everyone, uh, you know, they say easy lays the crown, that everyone who claims to be king over a kingdom, there's always people who want to take their place. And there's always this palace in, intrigue and such, and that's normal. It's all over the world, and there's history about it. There's all sorts of uh, you know, novels about this, and, and now movies about the House of Windsor and whatever, the, all the palace intrigue. Uh, but this, uh, what Herod had, was not normal. Uh, and in fact, his plot to kill uh, the babies of Bethlehem in order to kill this this child who had been born king of the Jews, as the wise men said, it was demonically inspired to wipe out all that children. It was straight from the pit of hell. How do we know this? Well, we're going now to go to the story, the, the prophetic passage in Romans, I mean, excuse me, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, uh, which is about the woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and uh, a garland or ringed uh, around her head with 12 stars. And as we go to this, I just wanted to show you this image first of, uh, of uh, this woman that so often, uh, if you Google it, Revelation 12, the woman clothed with sun, moon, stars, 
what comes up is usually someone who looks like uh, um, the uh, depiction of the church. Uh, throughout church history, this uh, a lot of uh, Bible teachers, scholars, whoever, preachers uh, have taken this to be a depiction of the church. There's other interpretations, but uh, I'll uh, stop my uh, screen share for now, and we want to look at Revelation 12 and the question of how was this slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem uh, a, a inspired as a demonic plot, not just Herod's jealousy, raging jealousy, but straight from the pit of hell, and how that applies today to what's going on in Israel today. This is where we'll make the connection as we read Revelation chapter 12. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, uh, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And this is actually a depiction of Israel, of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, that is taken from the dream of Joseph. If you remember, as a young man, he had a dream that upset his brothers and even his parents, where he says, I had a dream, and the sun and the moon and eleven stars, he was the twelfth, the twelfth son, uh, of Jacob, that they all bowed down to him. And it upset even, even his, his father, but uh, the, the sun represented his father Jacob, uh, the, the moon, his, his mother um, uh, Rachel, and the, the 11 stars were his 11 brothers. So this is a picture of Israel and it is a story of their redemptive journey down through history, how they brought redemption to the world. It's not all some future. We think all of Revelation is all futuristic. Well, this is taking us a journey on Israel's history down through time in order to deliver us the, the things of salvation. And it says that this woman was with child. She cried out in labor, in pain, to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. We don't have time to go into all that, uh, uh, all those symbols. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her son as soon as it was born. Now the woman, Israel, Gave, bore a male child, it says several times, child, male child, singular, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. There's prophecies in the Hebrew prophets that he'll rule in, in, in the world in the millennium in the messianic reign with a rod of iron. Uh, right now, uh, it's us voluntarily submitting our lives and our wills to the Lord and to his rule, but then with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. The, this dragon was ready to devour the child, but when, it gave, when the woman gave birth, it was caught up to God and his throne, brought to safety. And I believe this speaks of Herod and his demonic plot to slaughter the, and prevent the, the arising 
of this child who was born king of the Jews. He slaughtered all the infants in Bethlehem and out around it. In order to prevent that, it was demonically inspired that sometimes events in the earth are straight from the pit of hell. They are satanic in origin, and Herod's anger and jealousy against this, this child that was born in Bethlehem wasn't your normal palace robbery. This was straight from the pit of hell, according to Revelation 12. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. I believe this speaks of Israel's exile and how God preserved Israel in exile. Uh, it's not uh, necessarily that God always protected Israel, but he preserved them, and they were not consumed, it says in the book of Malachi. The Lord, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore, Israel, you're not wiped out, you're not consumed. Uh, he always preserves them. And war broke out in heaven. This is verse 7 of chapter Revelation 12. War breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. They did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old. There's no uh, hiding the ball here. The, the uh, John in Revelation is being straightforward. This dragon, the serpent of old, he's the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, who is cast through the earth, his angels cast with him, a third of the heavenly host. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, his Messiah, have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. That Satan, we see it in the book of Job and other passages in the Tanakh, that Satan had a certain place in the heavenlies where he could go before the court of God and accuse. And we have to be clear here. It's talking uh, about, you know, we take this as, as you know, we feel accused all the time. That voice comes, you did this, you did that. You, you, you know, you're no longer saved. You've lost your salvation. That accuser of the brethren comes, and we take this and apply it to ourselves and say, you know, God, don't listen to that. Your blood covers my sins and all. But I think we have to read this also in context, that there's no other people in the earth as a people that have faced more false accusations, more lies, more uh, calls for genocide than the Jewish people, absolute outright, outright blood libels to justify wiping them out as a people. We see it through biblical history. We see it through human, through world history. And, and this accuser of the brethren, believe me, he spent a lot of time and a lot of breath accusing the Jewish people. You see it in the story of Esther and how Haman says there's a different people. They don't follow your rules, king. We need to wipe them out. And the king, you know, the whole story of, of Esther and, and Purim, and so this accuser of the brethren who has a, had a, has a certain place in the heavens where he can accuse uh, the believers, and including Israel, including you and I who follow Christ, he's cast down to earth. And, uh, and it says, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, did not love their lives uh, uh, to the death. So we see this does apply to us as followers of the Lamb of God. Uh, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, 
For the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. If he was mad in the days when Christ was born into human flesh to come and save the world and tried to wipe him out, it didn't happen. He's even madder now. He knows he doesn't have much time. And here, the rest of the chapter, verse 13, now the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth. He persecuted the woman, Israel, okay, who gave birth to the male child, Jesus, okay? It's not just Mary. It's the whole uh, woman to take this as a depiction of the church. I think it takes it so far out of context of the reading here that you have to understand the, the persecution that the Jewish people have faced century after century after century, it is of demonic origin. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, meaning her land. It's about the return of Israel to her land where she is nourished or fed or sustained, preserved by God for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spews water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Uh, the mouth here speaks of all the accusations. He's the accuser of the brethren. It's out of his mouth. Uh, even in Revelation 16, I think it is, they, these frogs come out of the mouth and they're speaking blasphemies. And always you hear it even against Israel today over and over in the mainstream media and on campuses and everywhere, all these false accusations against Israel, you can almost see this spirit in operation being talked about here in Revelation 12 against an Israel restored to her place and being preserved by the Lord no matter what the enemy throws at her. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged, enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commands of God and have the testimony of Jesus. In other words, the devil gets frustrated that he can't destroy Israel, and he goes uh, against uh, those who are the offspring. And you and I were born out of the matrix of a Jewish Jerusalem, out of the matrix of Israel, just as Christ was born naturally, a Jew, the, uh, a descendant of David, son of David, son of Abraham, son of this uh, uh, Hebrew woman, Mary. Uh, but you and I are spiritual sons of Abraham, uh, grafted into that tree of faith. And the devil, uh, it's, it, we're seeing it more and more, even with Hamas, they are not just out to destroy Israel, they believe that Islam will conquer the world, and besides Israel, the greatest uh, obstacle to that is you and I as Christians, and we need to be aware of this. You can almost see, I, I, I don't even say almost, you can see the operation of what Revelation 12 is talking about. It relates to the Christmas story at the birth of Jesus, how Satan tried to wipe out the Christ child by killing all the infants in Bethlehem, right here in Revelation 12. And today, there is this accusation in the world operating against Israel to justify wiping out this nation, and, and uh, those who support it are also 
in the target. The, the slogan among many jihadist Muslims is first the Saturday people, meaning the Jews, then the Sunday people, meaning Christians. Islam itself was born as uh, the religion was born as a rivalry primarily to Christianity. Uh, if, if you understand Islamic teachings, they say Jesus na- never made it to the cross, that it was uh, Peter who denied him that was hung there, or maybe Barabbas or Thomas who denied him. There's several options different Muslim teachers have, but Jesus never made it to the cross. Where are you and I without the, the death and atonement of Jesus on the cross? There is no Christian faith without it. Sorry. So, you know, I, I as a minister of the gospel, I can't tolerate for a moment uh, this, this false claim of Islam, which denies the atoning uh, death of Christ on the cross and so much else. Uh, and it is a rival, just as Herod was a rival to Christ, a rival claimant. The Islam is a rival claimant to the throne of Christ in Jerusalem, even a rival claim to the Temple Mount where the throne of David is located. And uh, I'll go back and share uh, a uh, another slide here very quickly. We've been speaking from Revelation 12. You can go and study it yourself. But I want to go back to this uh, passage. Um, here again from Zechariah, which we read at the start. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you lowly on a donkey. These last verses, he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. From sea to sea is probably a reference to either the Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, as it was called in Bible times, and uh, to the Mediterranean Sea, so from the Jordan Valley Rift to the Mediterranean, and from the river, the Jordan River, to the ends of the earth. His, his dominion is just not here in the land of Israel. It's all over the world, but it begins here, uh, this prophetic passage talking about Israel's king who came to them the first time lowly, humbly to give him to give salvation, bringing salvation and justice, and because he humbly uh, submitted himself to the will of God on the cross, he now comes back as the Lion of Judah to rule with a rod of iron over the entire earth, but comes back to an Israel that is ready to receive him. And when we look at this passage from Zechariah 9, where it says his dominion is from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, Look at this. This is the current uh, slogan, the main slogan of the pro-Palestinian movement, the pro-Hamas movement, all worldwide, all these marches. uh, It's become their favorite, most popular slogan. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Uh, and it has become basically, uh, it basically means uh, slaughter the Jews, uh, wipe them out, because they're talking about not just the West Bank and Gaza, they're talking about the entire land of Israel, what they call Palestine, getting rid of Jewish sovereignty, getting rid of the Jewish majority. It is a call for ge- genocide. The country of Czechoslovakia, the 
Czech Republic has banned it. Other nations are saying it, uh, it, it was criminalized in the Czech Republic to use it in other countries. It's been banned. You can't carry these slogans because it is a call to genocide. But think about it. This is a rival claim, not only to the Temple Mount where, where the Messiah will rule and reign, but to the entire land that the prophet Zechariah says his rule, his dominion, this dominion of the Christ child, that the government is on his shoulders and he will, um, he will uh, rule from sea to sea, from the uh, Galilee or the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean or from the Jordan River to the ends of the earth. Here's this rival Islamic jihadist claim to the same land saying, no, it belongs to us. It belongs to us. It is a rivalry that I believe Satan is stirring himself, just as he did that jealousy in Herod, to try and prevent the purpose of God. The restoration of Israel today is, is the hand of God. He's preserving this nation. You and I, as Christians who support them, we're going to be increasingly targets ourselves of this, according to Re Revelation 12. But God will preserve this people. He will uh, preserve this nation until the Messiah comes and takes up his throne here. But we need to be aware that there is a justness, not in only in Israel's cause right now in defeating Hamas, but we need to be aware we also, as we consider the, the Christmas story, as we consider our identities as followers of the Christ child born, in Bethlehem, that there's a, a, a rival claim out there who wants to prevent the very thing that God wants to do through this restored nation and through an, you and I and supporting them. I hope this understand uh, opens your eyes more, your understanding to a certain aspect of the Christmas story that has great relevance for us today. We're talking about the Christmas story in Israel today, and even the battle that it's fighting on the front lines in Gaza, the West Bank, and up in the north. And may we pray for them, pray for peace on earth, goodwill for men, pray that Israel will defeat Hamas and bring a, a, a season of peace back to this land as God carries out his plans and purposes here, despite whatever the enemy will throw against us. Uh, that's our time for today on the uh, ICJ webinar. We thank you for joining us and join us again uh, after the Christmas holidays and the New Year's. I think it's the Thursday, the 11th of January at uh, um, probably three o'clock in the afternoon Israel time again. We'll be back. We're going to take a holiday break. But uh, at the top of the hour now, 4 p.m. Israel time, we'll be back with the daily uh, global prayer gathering. Please join us then, and we'll see you in, in January here on the ICEJ webinar series. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from Jerusalem.